0: Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless. That's a verse from the book of Jude that introduces us to the doctrine of what I call the perseverance of the saints. Meaning that true believers will persevere in faith to the end. Now often this doctrine is called eternal security and sometimes it's uh, often referred to maybe a little cryptically as once saved, always saved. But a better description of this doctrine I believe, is perseverance of the saints. So, at this point, I believe it's going to be crucial for us to understand, first of all, what perseverance of the saints does not mean, okay? First of all, it does not mean that Christians don't ever fail. It doesn't mean that Christians don't sometimes fail seriously and maybe even severely at times. What it does mean is that they will not completely nor finally fail, Fail, yes. Fail severely, probably. Fail completely, no. Fail finally, no. In other words, perseverance does not mean perfection. Secondly, not only does perseverance not mean perfection, it also does not mean that everyone who quote unquote accepts Christ can live any way they like without any fear of hell. It is not enough to have a superficial faith in Christ, It's not enough to have a superficial commitment to Christ or a superficial interest in Christ. It is not enough to have some feelings about Jesus that are positive or to make some momentary commitment to Him. That's why I believe the correct way to describe this doctrine is the perseverance of the saints rather than eternal security. It is not just that I believe we are eternally secure. It is that we are eternally secure because our faith Perseveres, And because our faith perseveres, we will not live like non-believers. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, a person who has accepted Jesus, or quote-unquote made a decision for Jesus, or prayed a prayer, and then goes on to live a sinful pattern of life with no fear of hell, is deluded, in my opinion. That's why we need to be uh, careful when we talk about the doctrine of eternal security as if one prayer makes you forever secure. Security is simply a reality because of the perseverance. A believer may sin and may sin seriously, but he will not abandon himself to sin, coming back under its utter and complete domination. 1 John 3.10 says, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So now the question,
1: why does the faith of the truly saved
0: persevere? Persevering faith is this. At salvation, I believe you are given a supernatural faith from God. Supernatural faith to believe the Gospel, to believe the testimony of the Holy Spirit of God, therefore coming to Christ. So, persevering faith is a supernatural gift from God. Ephesians 2 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. The grace is from God, and so is the faith. So, if saving faith is a gift from God, by definition, it is a supernatural faith. If salvation depended upon what I will call human faith, then one would most certainly, I believe, lose their salvation. That's why Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now you can tell, I believe, who the saved are. They are those who endure to the end. This supernatural faith from God is very different than what I call mere natural human faith. Like eating something at a restaurant is an act of human faith. We have that human faith because we've been around long enough to know that most of the time in a restaurant, the food will be okay. But when it comes to putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you have to completely abandon yourself to Christ, to whom you've never seen, never experienced, and can't know or experience until you come to that complete abandonment. Abraham illustrates this. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed, when he was called to go out to the place which he was, uh, which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And verse 10 says, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up his son Isaac. There, I believe, is nothing natural about that kind of faith, but rather it must be supernatural. And therefore... A gift from God. If we only had human faith, it would fail every time that God didn't do what we thought that He should do. Just like you would lose your faith in a restaurant if you got food poisoning from eating there. Your natural human faith would not persevere in that restaurant. The supernatural faith from God, though, endures even when life takes that turn for the worst. This enduring faith has taken martyrs all the way to the stake, to the guillotine, all the way to the loss of everything. Any idea of eternal security that leaves out perseverance is a distortion of this doctrine. Any idea, uh, excuse me, uh, let's consider um, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 3. Here I believe Peter was praising God for divine protection divine protection he says beginning in verse 3 1 Peter 1 verse 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled And that does not fade away, (coughs) reserved in heaven for you,
1: who are kept. There's the key verse right there. Verse 5. Who are kept. Other translations actually say protected.
0: Okay? He goes on. Who are kept or protected by the
2: power of
0: God. There's the supernaturalness in our faith. He says, by the power of God through faith for salvation. So we are kept or protected by the power of God, which is in the faith for salvation, therefore making it a supernatural faith. Now, Peter was the right person to give a lot of testimony to perseverance. Because if there was any New Testament personality who was constantly prone to failure, it certainly was Peter. I mean, when when Jesus looks at you and and says, get thee behind me, Satan, you you have seriously stumbled. Okay? Now what we need to remember though is that when Satan had demanded permission to sift Peter, remember what Jesus said? He said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And if that's how Jesus prayed, then I believe that's what will happen because we believe, I believe, that Jesus always prayed according to the Father's will. Just as the Spirit intercedes in Romans, according to the Father's will, and therefore we know that the faith of Peter didn't fail. Now that's Peter, you say. But what about us? Well, remember in John 17 when Jesus was about to leave, and he was praying for his disciples. In John 17:11, he says, "Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep, keep through your name." those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So he's talking more about about more than just Peter and more than just the disciples because he says later in verses 20 and 21, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, that they may all be as one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Jesus says, Father, I want you to keep them. I want you to make sure their faith never fails so that we will all be together as one in eternal glory. And then remember Hebrews 7.25 says, Since he, being Christ, always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, that prayer in John 17 is a prayer that Jesus continues to pray even today. Now that's the intercession of the second person of the Trinity that our faith not fail. Now let's consider the intercession of the Holy Spirit for our perseverance. Are we looking at Romans eight <clears> twenty <throat> seven? Now, uh, here, let me just go ahead and admit to you: this is where we get into some stuff where uh, I'll be biting off more than a lot of people care to chew on, and that includes Southern Baptists. But I believe to defend this doctrine accurately and. Uh, best I can. We're going, we've, got to, we've got to get into this. So here we go. Romans 8.27 says, now he uh, who searches the hearts knows the mind, what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit prays according to the will of God. So what is the result of this? He says in verse 28, And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now the question now is, what is this good that all things are working together for? This whole passage, beginning all the way back in verse 18, is about (coughs) eternal glory. So when he says that all things are working together for good, the good he's talking about is the eternal good. And it's summed up at the end of verse 28 in that phrase, according to His purpose. God causes all things to work together for our eternal glory because that is what He has determined to be His purpose. In other words, we are forever secure with persevering faith because that is the way God planned it. And then He begins to elaborate on the unfolding of this plan in verse 29 with some monumental teaching. Verse 29, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these he also glorified. Now I want to talk about foreknowledge and predestination in particular and how that brings us to the promise and the guarantee I believe of eternal security. These verses as I alluded to already take us into the vast infinity of divine purpose and into the most controversial doctrine in the history of the church. And as I tell my own church, our task, as always, is to believe what the Bible says, no more, no less, <clears throat> no differently, realizing that we can only understand as much as He revealed to us, and even that will not be without difficulty. So before we begin, let's be reminded, Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, In love He predestined us to adoption uh, as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Verse 9, according to his kind intention which he purposed in Christ. Verse 11, having been predestined according to his purpose. It all goes back to God's will and purpose. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own
1: purpose. John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to
0: them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, salvation does not occur ultimately because of what we decided, but because of what God has already decided according to His eternal purpose. And salvation has to be all God. okay? Because unregenerate man is dead in trespasses and sin. Dead people can't respond to anything, not even the Gospel. The God of this world has blinded His mind so much so, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man does not receive
2: the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Listen to this nor
0: can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Fallen man cannot make a decision for Christ all on his own. John 8, 43. Why do you not understand my speech? Jesus says, because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil. The Bible continually uses this language to describe the lostness of man. They belong to Satan. Their minds are blinded. They are dead in sin. They are slaves to iniquity. Therefore, salvation has to be initiated by God. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So salvation is initiated by God drawing us. But then he goes on in that same verse to say, and I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, no one gets lost in the middle. Romans 8 verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. In other words, man, Christ until God moves him in that direction in line with his eternal purpose. Romans 8.29 verse 30 now explains to us how God not only initiated our salvation but he will also bring our salvation to complete consummation in eternal glory without losing any of us in the middle. Let's take step one. For whom he foreknew. Okay, now what does foreknowledge mean? Some would say that it simply means foresight. That God can look down through history that hasn't happened yet, and He can see who's going to decide for Christ and who will not decide for Christ. And once He saw what all of us were going to do, then He predestined us based on that. Now, I admit, God can see history before it happens. But the problem with that doctrine is one I've already alluded to, and it is this. Man is wicked, ignorant, blind, <coughs> unable to understand the truth, unable to understand the gospel, unable to comprehend God, unable to get past his iniquity. He hates God, is God's enemy, loves his wickedness, is dead in trespasses and sin, and can't make the decision for Christ all on his own. God does have foresight. And he does see who will have faith. But it is the faith that he himself grants. Philippians 1.29 For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. God has foresight, but that's not what the word foreknowledge means. Some suggest that it means foreordained. And that he just says, I, I decree that such and such is going to be saved. And uh, I, I do believe that God decrees who will be saved. I know that's not even popular in Southern Baptist churches, but I'm just trying to take what I see revealed in Scripture. First Peter 1, verse two, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect, or other translations say, the chosen being delivered, By uh, according to the foreknowledge of God. So there's more to
1: foreknowledge than just foresight and foreordaining, though. Listen to Acts
0: 2.23. Him speaking of Christ being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now let's focus on two words there. Determined purpose.
1: The word determined, there is a perfect participle, meaning it speaks of a completed
0: action with continuing results. Literally, it's the word horizon, from which we get the word horizon, from, speaking of boundaries that are marked out. The word for purpose was used in classical Greek for uh, convened councils that make decisions, okay? Some translations actually translate it as council. Therefore, determined purpose means that God predecided a course of action and marked out the boundaries of that action. He says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God." Now, according to an old Greek rule of grammar called the Granville Sharp rule that applies to particular grammatical structures in the original Greek language, foreknowledge is dependent. Upon his determined purpose. They're almost synonyms. So God's foreknowledge is a predecided course of action with the boundaries of that action marked out. So it is true that God in his foreknowledge can see down through the eons of history, and it's true that God in his foreknowledge has pre predetermined and preordained who will who he will grant supernatural enduring faith. But there's another component in the concept of foreknowledge that not only embraces the idea of a predetermined course of action, but a course of action motivated by God's love. Remember in Genesis, it says that Cain knew his wife and bore a son. So knowing his wife is obviously speaking of an intimate expression of love. God says in Amos 3 verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, God didn't just know about them only and nobody else. Obviously, He's speaking of intimacy. And then the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, But if anyone loves God, this one is known by Him. In Matthew 7, Jesus said that He someday is going to tell a whole lot of people, I never knew you. God's foreknowledge is to predetermine an expression of love a lost sinner. So back to verse 29. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now those people whom he foreordained to a relationship of intimacy with him, he predestined. This continues the idea of being marked out beforehand. Ephesians 1.5, remember, having predestined us to the adoption of sons. He marked us out and wrote our names down before the world began. Revelation 13 verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, speaking of the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life. Now, let's get to verse 30. It says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Now, with this step, we move from eternity past into time and space where God activates his foreordained, predestined plan by calling us. Now this is the inward call that I believe John 6.44 talks about when Jesus said, the Father draws us. It's a saving, redeeming call. It's done in time, it's done through the preaching of the gospel and by the Spirit of God. Romans nine eleven and 13. Speaking of Jacob and Esau, it says, For the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil,
1: that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but
0: of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. In other words, in order that God's purpose and choice might stand before Jacob and Esau were ever born, God already determined who he was going to call. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The calling of God is when he moves on the sinner's uncircumcised heart and depraved mind and spiritual deadness and awakens his soul to the realization of hell, the conviction of sin, the desire for righteousness, and the need of a savior. And then it comes the, uh, the fourth great turn in verse 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Justified just simply means to declare someone righteous even though they aren't. In other words, when you believe in Christ, God gives you righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It comes down to this. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if He had committed all our sins even though He had not. So that He could treat us as if we had lived the perfect life of Jesus even though we do not. So foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification and then finally I may get done early. Finally in verse 30, whom he justified these he also glorified. Nobody gets off the bus anywhere on that trip. In fact, it says this in the past tense whom he justified, he also glorified, as if it had already happened. This is what's called in the Greek language language a proleptic terrorist. It's used to express an already accomplished reality because it is totally secure. So we are sustained by our supernatural faith given to us by God. We are sustained by the intercessory prayer of the second person of the trinity that our faith not fail and we are sustained by the intercessory prayer of the holy spirit that everything will work out for our eternal good i want to conclude with jeremiah 32 verse 40 and it says this and i will make an everlasting covenant for them that i will not turn away from doing them good but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not
2: depart from me. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's good to see everyone that's here. And I want to say, Mr. Chad, thanks for coming and being here and participating in this. I appreciate uh, Chad coming. And I hope it's okay to call you by your first name. Please, Uh, I want to tell you something interesting about uh, Mr. Chad first, before I get started. Um, I was really, when I was trying to make plans for this study in January, um, I had two preachers scheduled already to do this April the 10th slot, and they canceled out on me. And then I got a third preacher that said he would do this uh, study tonight. And I was worried, well, I've already had two canceled out on me and, and I'm worried about this third one. What if he cancels out? What's going to happen? And so I called uh, around some more. I finally got hold of uh, Mr. Chad on the telephone and I just explained to him, look, I've had two preachers cancel already. I've got a third preacher lined up and, and just in case he cancels out, would you mind being a backup? And uh, you know what he said, he didn't, he didn't even have to think about it, just immediately he said, I'm honored that you would even think about asking me to be a backup. And uh, I like that attitude that he would, uh, he didn't even have to think about that. And the fact that he spoke tonight tells you it's a good thing we had a backup. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm thankful to, to have Mr. Chad with us tonight. Now the question under dis- discussion tonight. Can a saved person so sin as to be eternally lost in the end? I think in order to answer this question from my viewpoint, we need to clarify the issue. And uh, first of all, the issue is not, can a saved person be secure in this life? Yes, he can. The question is, can a saved person be eternally secure in this life? That's what we're asking. Number two, the issue is not, is God faithful to do His part for those who are faithful? Of course He is. The question is, will people stay faithful? That's the question. Number three, the issue is not, can a person choose to be faithful and die saved? Of course they can. The question is, can a saved person choose to be lost? That's the question. Number four, the issue is not, can a saved person resist the devil and have the devil flee away from them? Of course they can. The question is, can a saved person make a a pact with the devil and be lost? That's what we're asking. Number five, the issue is not, can a saved person sin and get forgiveness for that sin? Yes, they can. The question is, what if a Christian doesn't seek forgiveness what if he doesn't repent is he going to be saved automatically anyway number seven or number six the the question is not is God in the saving business of course he's in the saving business the question is in God's forgiveness factory is he just churning out forgiveness unconditionally Number seven, the question is not, are people to whom the Lord are there going to be people that the Lord is going to say to them, "I never knew you." Of course, there's going to be people like that. The question is, will there be anyone that the Lord simply says, "I know you not." Okay. Number eight, the issue is not when God forgives a person, does He forgive all of his past sins? The question is, when God forgives a does He forgive all future sins that that person is going to commit? before they commit them, and without any repentance on their part. Number nine, the issue is not, is Christ's death on the cross sufficient to forgive our sins? Of course it is. The question is, is Christ's death on the cross sufficient to forgive us of sins that we intend to commit, or that haven't
1: been committed yet,
2: that we have no intention of repenting of? And number ten, the issue is not, is God powerful enough to protect His people from the devil? That's not the question. The question tonight is, Will God protect His people with no cooperation whatsoever on their part? Those are the questions, those are the issues that we're dealing with tonight. Skip on down now. Uh, I don't have time to go through all the material that's in this book, but skip on down to the part. Do we agree on conditional salvation? Now, my understanding, my my limited knowledge of of discussing Scripture with the Baptist uh, members, the Baptist Church teaches two things that for a sinner, salvation is conditional. And that sinner has at least enough free will to choose to be saved. That's why they uh, go around preaching and evangelizing. They believe they have at least enough free will to choose to be saved. And they have to meet at least some conditions. But the Baptist church also teaches this, that once a person does become saved, they lose the ability to choose now have free will anymore. And salvation is no longer conditional. All the rules change. Now what I'm asking tonight is, is that true? Do all the rules change after you get saved? Were you? Was salvation conditional before you were a Christian? But now that you are a Christian, it's not conditional anymore. And did you have at least a little bit of free will before you were saved? But now that you are saved, you have no free will anymore. The Bible answers, no. The rules haven't changed. You had free will before you were saved. You have free will after you're saved. Salvation was conditional before you were saved. Salvation remains conditional after you're saved. Now, having focused on what the issues are in this study tonight... I want to present to you five reasons why I believe this this idea of perseverance of the saints or uh, perseverance of the faith, whatever you want to call it, once saved, always saved, is not acceptable. Reason number one, once saved, always saved, is not acceptable because it teaches that saved people do not have free will. Now God created us with a free will A man has the ability to choose whether to serve God or to disobey God. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, Joshua said to the people, Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. The Lord wanted people to follow Him because they chose of their own free will to seek after Him and follow Him. He didn't want an army of robots who had no choice about the matter. Now, salvation does not destroy that free will to choose salvation. If a man had free will before he was saved, he has free will after he's saved. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 32, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the
1: prophets. And what that's all about, these these are saved prophets in the Lord's
2: church. They're saved. They're they're not people that just imagined or deluded that they're saved. They're saved. And the Bible says the spirits of those prophets are subject to the prophets. They have control of their own spirits. They have free will. Now, a saved person can choose for himself whether to remain saved or become lost. If he's got free will. If a saved Christian cannot choose to be lost, then he really doesn't have free will after all. Now, in order for somebody to have free will, this cannot be true. If somebody truly has free will, so you cannot believe once saved, always saved, and believe at the same time a person has free will. You cannot believe both of those at the same time. And this doctrine denies free will of man. All right? uh, reason number two, I reject this doctrine, and I think this is not acceptable because it teaches that salvation ceases to become conditional. If salvation were unconditional, everybody in the whole world would be saved. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants everybody to be saved. And in Titus chapter 2 verse 11, the Bible says, the grace of God which brings
1: salvation has appeared to all men. Now, if God wants all men to be saved and His grace to save
2: them has appeared to everybody, then everybody's going to be saved, right? No. In fact, most people are going to be lost. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, and verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, if God wants everyone to be saved and His grace to save them has appeared to everybody, why isn't everybody going to be saved? Because they don't meet the conditions for salvation. They don't meet the conditions. Jesus gave conditions. Salvation is conditional. In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, the Bible says, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the Bible says, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, the Bible says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you call on the name of the Lord? We studied that last month in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. And now, why are you waiting to rise and be baptized? And wash away your sins. Call on the name of the Lord. People call on the name of the Lord when they're baptized for the remission of sins. You see, salvation for the sinner is conditional. And then after a person is saved, it stays conditional. In John chapter 15 and verse 5, I am the vine, Jesus said, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for you. Without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. Now here's a branch that at one time was connected to the vine, and it's cast out, and it withers. The fact that the vine withers indicates that it was alive at one time. Uh, dead branch can't wither but this was a branch that was alive and withered and then it was burned you see if a person uh, uh, wants to be saved it's conditional they have to choose whether to stay saved if a saved person sins can't even do something to get forgiveness for it? yes but it's not automatic he has to do something. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light. Now, this is present tense, and it's linear action. What that means is, literally the passage is saying, If we keep on walking in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin, keeps on cleansing us. That's conditional. If we keep on walking, His blood keeps on cleansing now, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, it's conditional. If we confess, and that's linear action too. That is, if we keep on confessing, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So salvation is conditioned upon us, walking continuously in the light. And when we do make mistakes, keep on confessing and asking God to forgive us of those sins. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, Peter starts off telling all kinds of things that the Christian needs to be adding to his faith. And then in verse 8 he says, For if these things are yours and abound, they make you that you shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, uh, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. I'm unsure already. No, he said, you've got to give diligence to make your call and election. Sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Over and over, the Scriptures are telling us salvation is conditional from start to finish. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, David was speaking to his son Solomon. He said, if you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will cast you off forever. The same thing was essentially said to Asa in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 2. And the same thing is said to Christians in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Salvation is conditional from start to finish because people have free will. The only way you can make salvation unconditional is removes free will of people. So this is an unacceptable doctrine. Why? Because number one, it says that man has no free will. And number two, for this to be true, it has to say salvation is unconditional. Right? It's unacceptable for those reasons. But number three, once they always said is unacceptable because it teaches, it stands on another false doctrine of inherited sin. I know. Now think with me about this. It's a little bit difficult here. If a baby is born in sin, if he inherited Adam's sin or his mom and daddy's sin or, or anybody else, if he's born in sin and then uh, he grows up to an adult, all that happened is he's a big sinner now. Nothing, nothing really changed. He started off lost, thus lost sinner. Now he's a big lost sinner. Nothing happened. But if the baby is born innocent and pure and free from all sin and then he grows up and becomes accountable to the law of God now he chooses to sin and what have you got you've got someone who once was saved now they're lost and unless something happens they're going to die and be lost eternally and so the the idea of once they go they say depends on the doctrine of inherent sin, but it even gets worse than that. Because Baptist doctrine says that salvation at least is conditional upon two things. If you want to be saved, you have to do two things. You have to believe Jesus is the Son of God, and you have to call on the name of the Lord. Babies can't do either one of those things. And so if babies are born lost sinners, and they can't call on the name of the Lord, and can't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then they're, if they die, they're going to die eternally lost. But the Bible teaches that the, pu- the little babies are born innocent and pure. In Jeremiah chapter 19 and verse 4, when Judah was offering infant sacrifices to their idol gods, the prophet said, you have filled the streets of Jerusalem with the blood of the innocents. How could, it? How could the babies be called innocent? Because they're not guilty of any sin. They're pure and free of sin. If they die, they go to heaven. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. In the very next chapter, in Matthew chapter 19 verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, strange words. If little children are born devils, Strange that the Lord would actually be saying, unless you become a devil like these little devils, you can't enter into my kingdom. No, he's not saying that. Jesus' words imply that little babies are pure and innocent. They're guilty of no sin. And every adult in this room tonight is proof that this is not true. Because everyone here was born a little, innocent, pure baby then we grew up and we became accountable to the law of God and we chose to sin. And once saved, always saved, no, no. And so for this doctrine to be true, there can be no free will, there can be no conditions for salvation, and babies must be born lost in sin from birth. Number four, this doctrine is unacceptable because It is actually the Protestant version of the Catholic doctrine of indulgences. In 1530, Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation movement because he was at least a great part of his uh, uh, being upset with the Catholic Church was their sale of indulgences. You know what an indulgence is? An indulgence is a license. You want to drive a car? You've got to have a license. You better get a license to drive it. You want to, in the, in the Middle Ages, you want to commit a sin? You want to commit adultery? You want to commit murder? All you have to do is get a license. You buy an indulgence. You buy the license, and then you can, you can commit the crime. And you'll be forgiven before you do it. Now, there was a preacher named John Texel. He was a Dominican friar, and he was going around selling indulgences. And he would go to a town and he would assemble the people and preach a sermon. here's a portion of what he preached. Listen. Indulgences are the most precious and most noble of God's gifts. Come and I will give you letters all properly sealed by which even the sins you intend to commit may be pardoned. I would not change my privileges for those of St. Peter in heaven for I have saved more souls by my indulgences than the apostle by his sermons. There is no sin so great that an indulgence cannot remit. And even if one had offered violence to the Virgin Mary, Mother of God, let him pay, only let him pay well, and all will be forgiven him.
1: That outraged Martin Luther, and he began to protest against the Catholic Church. But really, is this doctrine here any better? Once saved, always
2: saved? Not not hardly. uh, there was a preacher named Sam Morris, he was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Stanford, Texas when he wrote this. He wrote this in the newspaper of Stanford, Texas. Listen to what he wrote. Do a Christian's sins damn his soul? We take the position that a Christian's sins do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives What he says, his character, his conduct, or his attitude toward other people have nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. All the prayers a man may pray. All the Bibles he may read, all the churches he may belong to, all the services he may attend, all the sermons he may practice, all the debts he may pay, all the ordinances he may observe, all the laws he may keep, all the benevolent acts he may perform will not make his soul one whit safer. And all the sins he may commit from idolatry to murder will not make his soul in any more danger. The way a man lives has nothing, whatever, to do with the salvation of his soul. I submit to you that what John Tetzel was saying is the same thing Sam Morris was saying. The only difference is the price you pay. John Texel said, if a man doesn't let him pay, only let him pay well. Sam Morris says, free of charge. What's the Bible say? In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, sh- what shall we say? That? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it, longer in it? In verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey? Stop, think about that. Who you submit yourself to, a Christian has free will. And the Christian can choose to submit, to obey, to sin leading to death. He can choose that. Or he can choose of obedience leading to righteousness. He has free will and he can choose. There are no indulgences for a Christian. There are no vacation days. There are no cheat days. Salvation is conditional from start to finish. And it's conditioned on humbly obeying what God says. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. Salvation is conditional from start to finish. If a Christian sins, there are steps he can take to get forgiveness from those sins. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. But the forgiveness is not automatic. It's not unconditional. And if he does not take those steps, he dies lost. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 20 through 22. For one sake, always there to be true then. There can be no free will, There can be no conditions of salvation. Babies must be born lost in sin from birth. And Christians have a license to live any way they want. And number five, this doctrine is unacceptable because it makes the warning passages of the Bible useless. Over and over again, the Bible warns Christians, don't be cocky, don't be arrogant, and think you've got a free ticket punch to heaven. Be careful. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made He said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. There is the origin of once saved, always saved. And that woman believed him. She was saved. And she was in a saved condition. And she believed the lie. And then she partook. And Adam, he wasn't deceived. He knew it would kill him. He went ahead and did it on purpose, willfully. According to 1, Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 14. He willfully partook of that fruit. And they died. Or they became lost. And the devil, if one Satan always said it's true, the devil's the biggest fool the world's ever heard of because he's been trying for 6,000 years to get one of God's people to sin and be lost, and he's not succeeded a single time. If that's true, why don't he just quit? He knows he's never done. That's not true. The prophets talk, one saint always said is not true. In Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 12, no? Therefore you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered, but because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. Oh, well, if there was a passage that taught. Once saved, always saved. No, that's saved. No. Ezekiel 33. 12 through. Look at what the Lord said. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned and seem good for nothing but to be uh, thrown out and trodden underfoot of men? Now listen, you're the salt of the earth. Are these people that are deluded thinking they're saved? But they're really not all. Well, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And if you lose your flavor, you lose your purity. This is a Christian who loses his purity. You're good for nothing. And I don't think somebody was going to go to heaven was good for something. But Jesus said, this man who loses his purity is good for nothing but to be cast out. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 28, Jesus said, But I say, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Do I need to pluck out of my life those things that are causing me to sin? Yes. And if I don't, Jesus said my whole body will be cast into hell. That's Gehenna hell. That's the devil's hell. Do we believe Him? Do we believe Him? Again, in Matthew chapter 18... Starting in verse 23, Jesus tells this story about a servant of the master. Was this a deluded servant? Uh, just thought he was saved? Just pretending he was a servant? But he owed the master 10,000 talents, so oh, he had messed up. And uh, the Bible says in verse twenty-seven, the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him to debt. Was he really forgiven? Yes. Then he goes out And he finds one of his fellow servants who owed him and he would not forgive that fellow servant. Then verse 32, the master after he had called him said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Here's the Lord giving us a threat that if we do not live by his standards, he will revoke the forgiveness he gave us. Salvation condition. The apostles taught salvation is conditional. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 18, Peter begins talking about people who have actually escaped from sin. Actually, they have. Now look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the Holy Commandment delivered unto them. Can you be, can you be lost after you say, Oh, almost no, sir. You being worse. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. If we sin willfully, after we have received a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire in the nation which shall devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose that he will be thought worthy who trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Who are these people? The Bible says that they were sanctified by the blood of the covenant. Verse 29. They are called the Lord's people. Verse 30. What are they going to have if they sin willingly? Death. Something worse than death without mercy. What's worse than death without mercy? Hell. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Finally look at Revelation 22 and verse 19. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. If someone has their name in the book of life, are they saved? Yes, but they can have their name removed from the book of life if they take away from the word of God. Now, this doctrine is unacceptable it teaches men have no free will. It teaches salvation is unconditional. It teaches babies are born lost in sin from birth. It teaches a Christian can live any way he wants. That's the logical conclusion here. And it teaches the warning passages of the Bible mean nothing. Therefore, we reject this.